The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm David Priest, publisher of Lawfare, with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for October 10th, 2022. To provide context for dynamics inside Russia today, we bring you a conversation from May 25th, 2018. Vladimir Milov was the former Deputy Minister of Energy in the Russian government, and he spoke with Alina Polyakova about the Russian economy, recent cabinet reshuffles in the Kremlin at the time, and how local politics play in Russia. I'm Alina Poyakova, and this is the Russia special series on the Lawfare podcast for May 26, 2018. There are two seemingly contradictory views of Russia. To some, It's a country in decline, faced with a stagnant economy deeply dependent on oil and gas exports, and a massive demographic problem. But to others, it's a great power on the rise. A nuclear superpower, ready and willing to take increasing risks on the world stage, undermine Western democracies, and compete directly with the United States. So, which one is it? Or is it really both? To get at those questions, I spoke to Vladimir Milov, who's the current economic advisor to Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny and the former deputy minister of energy in the Russian government. We spoke about the Russian economy, the recent cabinet reshuffles in the Kremlin, and how local politics are back in Russia. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 315, Vladimir Milov with a crash course on the Russian economy. Vladimir, welcome to the Lawfare Podcast. Pleasure. So before we get into where you are now and what you're doing in in Russia, I want to go back to where you were, let's say, 20 years ago, uh, late 90s. Um, So at that time, you were serving in the Russian government, and you stayed there for about six more years. eventually becoming the deputy minister for energy in the Russian Department of Energy. So an interesting time. Absolutely. Uh, so I, I'm curious, though, uh, to hear a little bit more from you. One, you're, you're very young, I should say. Um, you're even younger 20 years ago. <laughs> um, you know, w- when you entered government, it was under Yeltsin. But then when you exited, it was under Putin. And 
talk a little bit about, you know, what motivated you to go in in the first place at a young age? And on the other hand, you know, what drove you to leave? Well, I was really a very politicized kid because I was uh, 17 in 89 when actually perestroika erupted and uh, Berlin Wall collapsed. And I really cared about reforms. Uh, so in mid-90s, um, I graduated from the Moscow Mining University and I was already very angry that uh, reforms are really not moving anywhere. And exactly in the spring of 97, uh, we really had like a second wave of major radical changes and the government was renewed and Boris Nemtsov and Anatoly Chubais were appointed uh, first deputy prime ministers. And uh, in April 97, Boris Yeltsin had a radio address. He didn't feel too good at the time, so he didn't do TV addresses and he did the radio address. Actually, he specifically called for youngsters to join the government uh, because one of the uh, specific problems was that it was overcrowded by elderly Soviet bureaucrats. So on top, you had this uh, couple of young reformers, but... Uh, on the middle and lower levels, you, it, it was filled with absolutely inadequate old Soviet bureaucracy who couldn't do much. So I was, uh, I was 24 years and I could write good and formulate my thoughts and remember numbers and understand stuff. So as quickly in demand, I was just in a couple of years promoted to be the head of major department at the Federal Energy Commission, which is uh, similar to the U.S. FERC. And so it went. Basically, I was quickly engaged in uh, major structural reforms, unbundling the power and gas industries. Uh, then there, there was there was a time when many prime ministers have changed and even the president have mm -hmm. changed. So we were looking at this like, oh, here's another one. <laughs> and we were considering ourselves looking like at a, Putin, a, that way, you mean. Putin and, and those who came before him. Uh, but eventually, you, obviously, <laughs> he came to stay for much uh, longer. But we were there like a task force. Uh, we really wanted to dismantle this monopolistic Sovietic structure of governance of uh, power and gas industries, and we want to introduce uh, dynamic uh, uh, competitive markets. Uh, it was a very tough gig because the monopolies obviously were resisting, the remains of Soviet bureaucracy were resisting, but uh, we really did achieve a lot, and uh, we'll be happy to share it uh, if you'd like, but we had no idea that actually initially when Putin arrived that he will be the guy to stop it and uh, make a complete U-turn, completely reverse the policy trend towards centralization as opposed to competition and unbundling. So you, you obviously worked a lot on Gazprom, as you mentioned. I mean, Gazprom now is Russian state monopoly, basically, um, and is continuing to be very influential in the European energy market as well. Um, but you mentioned that Putin was the one who stopped reforms in this very key sector of the Russian economy. If I'm not mistaken, is it 70% of Russian uh, state revenues are still based, are still coming from oil and gas exports. Is that still correct? No, not exactly right. Uh, it's it's the federal budget where they dominate mm. about you know, 55, 60 percent of the federal budget revenue in different past years were coming from the oil and gas industry. In terms of a share of GDP, there is a big debate between economies going on between, because nominally it's not too large. It's about like 8-10%. But there was an article by IMF about 15 years ago called Patyomkin GDP. <laughs> Whereas uh, the, the bottom line is that some economists argue that uh, a large part of the uh, oil and gas uh, uh, GDP is uh, nominally kept in the books as trade. 
like wholesale trade and stuff. So if you calculate uh, the total share, it's about a quarter. It's about a quarter. Russia is still not a totally oil and gas country, but the federal budget is particularly dependent on uh, on oil and gas, and obviously the trade balance uh, heavily depends on uh, inflows of revenue. So in the early 2000s, when Russia was seemingly on a path towards market liberalization, uh, decentralization of control by the state, uh, privatization of various industries, including the very critical energy, uh, gas, and oil industries, and then you said Putin put a stop to this. Um, why? Why do you think that was one of his first moves in, in the early two thousands? Look, I think uh, Putin underwent in his first years in power. Putin underwent a very uh, significant change of heart because when he arrived, the situation was pretty bad. We were just like a year and a half after the major financial shock of the ninety eight default. And uh, if you if you read the macroeconomic forecasts of the time, the mainstream was uh, that the oil is going to hit back ten dollars per barrel quite soon, and uh, the initial pushback uh, after the default uh, due to the devaluation of ruble would be exhausted. Uh, so we need to go through major reforms to actually make the economy work. This is why initially he flirted with the idea of liberal reforms, uh, markets, competition, and so on. But then uh, oil became more expensive. We also passed through what we call the problem 2003 because there was a peak of foreign debt payments. Uh, we, we ought to pay uh, 17 billion bucks uh, in 2003 alone. Uh, and we obviously didn't have that money when Putin just arrived in the office. But in 2003, oil was uh, already closer to 50. So we were managed to do it. And uh, the more money government got under control, the less incentive there was to reform. So all these initial instincts of Putin and many people in his team were awakened. Uh, they remembered that they don't like things like private initiative, competition, and market forces. Instinctively, they believe in command and control, controlling uh, strategic commanding heights in the economy. And uh, uh, this also benefited a lot of them financially. And uh, we saw many billionaires emerging uh, uh, who basically sat on these cash flows and uh, effectively privatized them. So it's a combination of primarily uh, economic instincts plus uh, uh, the desire to enrich themselves, uh, which have driven this U-turn. So by the time you leave government in 2002, um, the economy seems like it's in a very different path than when you enter 1997. It's in a path towards consolidation, centralization, and really the establishment of this you know, power vertical kleptocracy. Is that is that right, that you really started to happen in the early 2000s? Not exactly, because I would say the first Putin's term was relatively normal. Uh, and we had a rather competitive parliament. We really had fights in parliament going on for adoption of different laws. And when the government introduced legislation, it was not a given that it would be adopted. And uh, we had eight factions uh, with different positions on different issues. We had, uh, for the first time in Russian history, adoption of a land code with private property on land, and communists blocked the podium in the Duma. That was a big deal. So, so Putin's first term was quite reformist, uh, and uh, we had a fairly competitive uh, political environment, but already certain trends uh, began to be visible. And I think Gazprom was obviously in the forefront. Uh, Putin clearly given an indication that this is the company that he's best interested in. Immediately after arriving as president, he appointed Dmitry Medvedev, the current prime minister, as a chairman of the board of directors, uh, replacing the former PM, Viktor Chernomyrdin. 
Next year, 2001, he appointed Alexei Miller, his St. Petersburg associate, as uh, CEO of Gazprom. And uh, it was pretty clear that Putin and his people had uh, special interest in this company. And uh, more than that, keeping it centralized, not dismantling it, and keeping centralized control over the lucrative cash flows that Gazprom provided. So in the early 2000s, the the political system is still relatively open. The economic system is becoming more closed. And then eventually, um, perhaps out of the following elections, uh, the consolidation of politics also starts to take place. And you have basically the emergence of what eventually we have today, which is a parliament in Russia that um, is not independent, that more or less rubber stamps the, the wishes of the executive, um, and, and an increasing sort of clamp down on any sort of dissent or opposition in the political space and also in the civil society and media space, which is something we've talked about uh, on the podcast quite a bit. So fast forward from you know, your early days, having this experience of transition from Yeltsin to Putin, seeing it from the inside, seeing the, the U-turn, as you call it, from the inside. And then now we're um, in 2018, uh, Putin has just won, won quote unquote, I should say, mm-hmm. uh, re-election. He seems to enjoy high support in Russia. Um, but what is, you know, in 2018, how would you assess, you know, Russia's economic future today after you've had the system in place for the last, let's say, 15, 16 years? Well, uh, initially, when uh, Putin's popularity were rising during the, uh, his first two presidential terms, his biggest promise and the major part of the social contract with the society was that his business is to uh, improve living standards of the Russian people for an undetermined period ahead. And the sky is the limit, you know. And uh, for that, actually, he traded surrender of political and civil rights. But something got broken. Uh, and essentially, since the beginning of 2008 financial crisis, we stopped growing. So, you know, the economists uh, often use this term a lost decade regarding Japan in the aftermath of economic crisis there in the early 90s. We had our own lost decade since autumn 2008, uh, where essentially we didn't move anywhere. Uh, our GDP is basically the same and economists argue among themselves like, you know, did it grow 3% or contracted 1.5? <laughs> but I think it doesn't really matter. The point is that uh, we never got anywhere uh, during this past decade. And uh, the big issue is that uh, people are discussing the perspective and uh, there is none. Uh, there are, the, the government is constantly promising that we're out of the woods and the growth begins from now. But they cannot name a single factor uh, which would contribute to that, like demonopolizing all these big state companies, increasing productivity. No, it's not on the agenda. Massive inflow of foreign investments. Again, no, because you see that uh, Russia is already in the 10th year in a row of constant and increasing capital flight. And given the current sanctions environment, I think uh, investors will not be lining up. Uh, People mentioned the oil price, but I have to refer to the... Example of 2013, the last relatively calm year when we didn't have a war, didn't have sanctions, and the Ural's oil price was $107 per barrel on average in 2013. And we're already down to sluggish growth, just a little over percent of GDP. Industrial output, fixed investment were down. 
in the negative territory in 2013, which have uh, proven that uh, the chosen model of dominance of ineffective state monopolies and high corruption were uh, constraining factors, and uh, our growth had exhausted. We we haven't moved anywhere uh, since then, and things got worse because you see that uh, uh, Russian state companies keep nationalizing already businesses in retail, in IT sector, in uh, telecom, and, and, and stuff like that. So barely. I mean, uh, there will be no private kiosks left soon. <laughs> Everything will be controlled by VTB or Gazprom Bank right. or whatever. So, so, so there's uh, my question to the proponents of the idea that we might grow, uh, can, uh, come to the growth pattern again is a very simple question. Uh, what are the factors that will drive this? Right. I mean, what I think is interesting about the narrative you lay out is that it's a little different than what we often hear um, in the United States uh, or, or in the West. You know, I think the more common narrative is that while oil prices were high, uh, which oil prices didn't crash until, what, 2014? Uh, yeah, yes, 2014, they collapsed from uh, 120 right. to, to uh, less than 40 bucks per barrel. Exactly. Yeah. Now they're on the rise again. Uh, so the, I think the basic narrative is as, as long as oil prices are high, you know, the Russian budget, which is dependent on, on basically the price of oil, uh, is doing pretty well. And Putin is going to remain popular. But what you're saying is actually this lost decade started much earlier. So in 2008, uh, on the heels of the global economic recession, uh, Russia never comes out of that really, despite the oil peak that we see of over $100 a barrel. I think this is actually quite different than the, the normal narrative. So I guess my question to you is, well, now that we seem to be recovering from a downturn in the oil price collapse, uh, will this help the Russian economy? What is the current state? And we often, I mean, the other question I have for you is since you know these numbers so well, is what about reserves, right? Often we hear about this rainy day fund that the Russian government has had, um, which they were able to pull together when oil prices were high. Um, and then the foreign currency reserves, these, these two measures. Um, so now that you have oil prices going up, is this not going to give the economy a bit of a, a, bit of a push forward? Well, uh, if you try to inject drugs into a dead man, it won't help, uh, you know, stimulate him, uh, get up and go. Let me get, go back again to the experience of 2013 when oil was still high and above $100, because that is very relevant in explaining why this simplistic theory about uh, Russian economy only uh, correlating with the oil price just doesn't work. Because uh, 2013, was the year when uh, there was a there was an idea circulating in, in Putin's uh, uh, circle that uh, the engine of growth should be state investment investment fixed investment by the budget and big state corporations. So that year uh, investment there was a lot of money coming in and investment hit record levels. We had total investment from the budget system about two trillion rubles and uh, uh, combined investment of top ten biggest state companies another three trillion. So five trillion altogether, record high, economy was barely growing. Now, the question is why? A simple explanation, because uh, when private investors put some money into the projects, they are motivated to get the profit and work effectively. When the state companies and government and bureaucrats do that, they don't care. And uh, we have produced, uh, I mean, uh, dozens of examples of what economists call the sunk costs, we build huge hydropower dams in the east, which are currently used with about 30% load factor only. 
we build gas pipelines that stay half empty. Uh, like Sakhalin, Khabarovsk, Vladivostok, which is the most obscene case, it barely ever hit 40% load, and the government even uh, put a, uh, a secrecy file uh, on the load factor of that pipeline. It cost about uh, uh, several hundred billion rubles and was built by Rotenberg, one of the Putin's cronies. Uh, Sochi Olympics. Uh, do you remember that? Oh, <laughs> there yes, was a I lot do. of noise about it, but people people keep forgetting. But about fifty billion bucks was spent, and all these like infrastructure and growth boosts uh, basically have turned uh, to be empty buildings, empty infrastructure objects, and empty stadiums, which are barely used. At least not to the extent that was. At least it's not worth fifty billion dollars. So uh, I can go on forever with these multiple examples, but simple explanation is: no matter how much money uh, investments in this highly monopolistic, bureaucratized economy don't work. On paper, there's fixed investment, but it does not generate any returns. Another big issue is the terribly low productivity in all this state sector, which currently dominates uh, a Russian economy. You said like uh, 70%. There was an estimate of uh, Russian government uh, a couple of years ago about the share of the state in GDP. I think it's probably even more now, maybe closer to 80 and uh, Russian relatively low productivity as compared to Western economies has a name. Uh, it's state sector, where, where we have a private sector that still survives somehow, and their productivity is more or less okay. But in the state sector, is absolutely terrible. And uh, this is why more money from oil doesn't necessarily mean that the country would get richer. And I didn't even begin to talk about corruption and how much of it is stolen. We will get to that point. Um, just to stay for another second on the economic forecasting, um, some of the recent uh, assessments by major financial institutions uh, say that Russia was forecasted to grow in terms of GDP about 1% to 1.5%. It's been downgraded a little bit since the, the recent uh, U.S. sanctions they came out in April and some of the knockoff effects of that. So we're going to see stagnation, yes. basically. And you're telling us that it doesn't really matter if the oil price goes back to its high from you know, 2013 because the Russian economy can, will not be able to restart itself just from that increase in potential state budget revenue because the underlying structural problems That's right. are just far too deep. And you've said uh, before in an earlier conversation you and I had uh, that you see kind of this big bust coming, um, an economic crisis because the system is not sustainable. I think there's two different narratives uh, that we often hear about the Russia as a country and the Russian economy uh, more specifically. One is that, you know, you can muddle through for a very long time. So you have stagnation, you have uh, domination of the government, the state of the economy, but that can really go on for decades. And the people won't live any better. They'll live far worse over time. Uh, but you know, the Russian people can suffer for a long time. And this is the kind of Russia we're going to have, kind of muddling through Russia. Um, I think a, a, another narrative is that actually, and maybe I'm not sure if this is where you fit in, uh, but how, how would you reconcile the notion that there is a common view that Russia is not just a stagnating power, but very much a declining power. I've been hearing this for a very long time, that if you look at some of these economic indicators, you're pointing to also the demographic problem, uh, you know, Russians having a low birth rate, 
the uh, outflow of young Russians who are leaving for opportunities elsewhere, that demographically the country is literally dying. Um, so Russia is a declining power, a stagnant power. Um, either way, it's not really a concern for the United States um, or, or other great powers of the world for these reasons. So how, do, how would you respond to that? I don't think that these two narratives are necessarily contradictory. Right. Uh, and point number one, yes, there is a great potential uh, uh, for the situation to continue for absolutely undetermined periods. Uh, the, the, the potential to rot forever is there. Right. And the only variable, this is actually why I'm currently focused on politics and not giving some economic advice to the government. Uh, the only variable that can change things is if the Russian population wakes up and claims uh, political engagement back, right, and claims back political rights and demands a competitive process and serious discussion on different ideas. Uh, now, where does the country go from here? If this, it's possible that it doesn't happen then we might really have this stagnation or decline for decades and nothing will, will be going down. That's, that's true. That's a possibility. Now, another possibility which I'm actively working on together with Alexei Navalny and our colleagues in the opposition is try to wake up the Russian population and uh, demand answers, demand competitive political process and competition of ideas how to boost economy, including our ideas of demonopolization, big exit from, by the bureaucracy from, from the economy and uh, many others. And uh, about the declining power, if, if the stagnation continues, uh, just physically, as a matter of mathematical fact, uh, or if Russia will be growing just one point something percent, uh, our share in the global GDP will continue to contract. We'll get smaller and smaller from like 2% down to 1% and maybe less. Uh, and that's an like, inevitable trend. It doesn't necessarily mean that Russia uh, will cease to be a power as such because... Uh, Putin has sufficient capabilities to continue to act disrupting in a disrupting manner on the international stage and demand attention, uh, pretty much the way he does right now, and threaten his neighbors and like many interferes in Western politics. And uh, there will be enough resources and enough instrumentarium for that. But uh, I would agree with the notion of declining power in terms of, you know, stagnation inevitably leads to shrinking of our, our role and weight within the global economy. And uh, economically, uh, if this uh, continues, uh, we would matter less and less. And there is no other way around. We need to undergo major reforms to change that. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I think the great paradox of Russia, uh, to my mind, is that 
even though, you know, if you look at some of these economic trends, demographic trends, underlying structural problems you're talking about, um, not to mention uh, the mass amounts of state funds and resources that are stolen by Putin's cronies uh, from the Russian people and the capital flight um, that that uh, engenders. Uh, you've had massive capital flight from Russia for, I think, decades now, basically since Putin came to power, that despite all this, uh, the Putin regime has been very willing to take on risks um, in the foreign policy space and become increasingly more assertive and aggressive. And you mentioned this notion of uh, a sort of social contract uh, that uh, the Putin government established with the Russian people over the first uh, one or two terms of his government, that you know we would have economic prosperity, mostly due to growing oil prices, but you give up some political rights. And of course, since um, this lost decade begins around 2008 that you talked about, uh, the social contract is quietly revised. And now it's, well, you have uh, fewer economic opportunities. Uh, so forget about prosperity. Uh, forget about political rights, where he took many of those away. Uh, but, you know, Russia is great again. You know, uh, Russia is a great power. Um, Crimea is back, quote unquote. Uh, Russia is mediating the conflict in the Middle East in the absence of the United States through its intervention in Syria. So you have this paradox of a country that is taking increasing risks abroad, uh, despite its potential declining resources due to a variety of factors. And I think so the question that uh, people have, you know, one, how long can this really be sustained? And, you know, how much will the Russian people be willing to suffer uh, for this kind of social contract? Well, I have to say that uh, one of the major factors contributing to Putin taking risks in the international politics is the fact that he is so sure about his total control of what happens at home, uh, which might eventually change. And this will also impact uh, his international behavior. But you got to see that he's also quite careful in terms of what he does and does not. At the international stage, like, for instance, in Syria, he never uh, uh, opted for massive presence of official Russian boots on the ground. We only seen some mercenaries uh, about which... Russian officials say that we're not sure if this is our it's people. The so-called so <laughs> Wagner group. Yes, yes, yes. But but he refrained. He remembers the Afghanistan experience, and he refrained from really sending massive on-the-ground personnel. Same uh, with Ukraine. Uh, except for Crimea, we we don't have like official Russian presence. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, he never sent official uh, army units uh, openly there, and. Uh, I think importantly, this is where I, I would say that the Western sanctions of 2014 played a great role. They stopped attempts for further military offensive towards uh, other parts of territory of Ukraine. So he's also, he's aggressive, he's disruptive, but he's also so somewhat careful uh, because he doesn't want to increase the body count. And, uh, uh, you, you know, I was uh, when I, I was a schoolboy in the 80s, uh, the body count from the Afghan war and the, I think probably even more importantly, the inflow of wounded uh, was because like we had like nearly every neighborhood had several families affected by that. So you couldn't hide it anymore. And it quickly became a political factor. It was one of the major issues during the perestroika. Putin understands that. Uh, this is why there are limits to what he can do, and he's sort of constrained by this 
domestic situation, the unwillingness of Putin to create many, many problems for Russians that might uh, change the political landscape. And you write, uh, you write by uh, saying that the social contract that we both mentioned was breached. There is no economic prosperity promised anymore. Moreover, I have to say, uh, in reverse, Putin is openly saying you Russians have to suffer as a price paid for our geopolitical greatness, right? However, uh, there is a difference between the first initial social contract was quickly bought by the society. Everybody was happy about improving living standards after very turbulent 80s and 90s. And many people were ready to disengage from politics. But not now. Uh, I would say, I would argue that Russians are hardly buying this new contract because they uh, nominally approve uh, the greatness part, but they're not really happy about the suffering part. And uh, many other events uh, from the same opinion polls that give Putin's high approval ratings show that Russians are dissatisfied with the economic situation and wants the government to seriously refocus on domestic affairs and fixing the economy instead of being engaged in uh, geopolitics. And uh, uh, basically, you would see very soon huge disappointment uh, reflected in the same opinion polls by uh, reinstallment of Medvedev as prime minister and basically appointing the same cabinet. So uh, about the social contract, I would say the difference uh, with what happened 15, 20 years ago is that this time uh, it will be more difficult to sell the new contract uh, suffering in return for greatness. So you, you, you mentioned uh, the new cabinet. Uh, you know, now Putin has had his official inauguration on May 7th. Uh, I do find it interesting that uh, the election in Russia took, took place on March 18th, the fourth anniversary of the annexation of Crimea, which, of course, is sort of Putin's uh, crown jewel, you could say. And then uh, the inauguration takes place during the Victory Day holidays uh, in Russia, where everybody is in a holiday spirit and celebrating, whether you like it or not, um, you'll you'll basically be forced to celebrate the inauguration as well. And so uh, those two dynamics are uh, just a tangent, but they're interesting. Um, but to go back to, you, you mentioned the cabinet reshuffling. So now we have the new cabinet has been announced. Uh, you've called this new cabinet... Uh, the cabinet of stagnation. Um, talk a little bit about why you say it. That's what the new government uh, is. Because there was wide anticipation from absolutely different angles of the Russian political system. There was wide anticipation that Putin would use the new, this new term to do something. You know, Britney Spears has a song called do something, right? Uh, and actually Medvedev, uh, in the first place, let's talk about Medvedev for a moment. Uh, he has a reputation of the guy who does nothing. And everybody knows that because he's been around for too long. So this is a very clear message uh, to the Russian people. I, Vladimir Putin, am happy about everything. I don't want to change anything. So those of you uh, who anticipated change, you might just as well get lost. That's the message, right? And if you look further uh, into the composition, there was some rotation of personnel. But there is, there is really nobody new. I mean, we, we knew all these guys. Most of the ministers stayed, some of the deputy uh, prime ministers stayed. Definitely, we know Siluanov has been working in the Ministry of Finance since 1980s and the Soviet Ministry of Russian uh, Federative Republic of the USSR, right? So uh, there are uh, people thought about fresh faces, uh, people thought about potential reforms, people thought about probably Kudrin. There is none. There are just same technocrats, right? Which is a 
the best illustration that Putin does not want any change, does not want any reforms, which are bloody necessary, right? And uh, I think also uh, a very important factor is uh, strengthening of uh, the finance minister Silvanov, uh, because this guy has a reputation of um, uh, a person, uh, uh, clearly a fiscal hawk, the guy who would not give money to anybody but would prefer to multiply the reserves, who would not invest but will keep the reserve fund and uh, uh, who continuously came about and continues to promote the idea to raise taxes and different angles of, of uh uh, our economy, and we could under under the strengthening of Siluanov, we could well expect uh, increase of taxation. So no reforms, but fiscal tightening, uh, because Putin announced many uh, new spending initiatives, and the money has to come from somewhere. Where from from they've been discussing increases of multiple taxes for the past few months, and already came up with uh, certain ideas. So it's 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 a tightening cabinet. It's not a reform cabinet. It's 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 really a, a cabinet of status quo. I wanted also to mention one important thing. Right, the day before Medvedev's inauguration, uh, the Putin submitting Medvedev's candidacy into Duma for approval. Uh, which is a very loyal pro-Kremlin, uh, the most pro-Kremlin pollster in Russia, had published an opinion poll uh, which said that about two-thirds of Russians actually want a serious change or adjustment of course, a political and economic course, uh, which means that the demand for changes is really out there. And I'm convinced, uh, knowing the Russian people and frequently visiting the region, I'm convinced that uh, a reappointment of Medvedev will be a, a huge factor cont contributing to the buildup of negativity towards uh, the political and economic course in the Putin's new term. So two-thirds of Russians want some economic and political some change. Some kind of change, which is you should not treat it as – you should not interpret this as, uh, as though these people really understand what they want. But it more says about that they're unhappy about the current situation and want – it was, it was like there was some sort of gradation about uh, severity of change. So basically, people want serious change and serious – they are not happy with the current course and – uh, want a real transformation. So, so let's talk about that a little bit. You know, what do average Russians want? You travel all over Russia. Um, you talk to people's from from people from small towns, uh, villages. Uh, you're now, you know, as I should have mentioned, you mentioned earlier, um, you're working very close to Alexei Navalny. You're his economic advisor. You're deeply involved in this more grassroots politics. You know, what's your sense? You know, what do you hear from people outside of Moscow and St. Petersburg, especially, as to what they might want? Uh, the big problem is that uh, Russian government has done all it could to actually keep people away from serious discussions about the economy. If you turn on the Russian TV, you hear everything about Ukraine, about Syria, about Trump. Uh, but Russian economy is not even, I mean... It, it didn't even get 30 seconds before sports news, right? Hmm. So uh, that's a big problem. Uh, people really are un undereducated on this topic. They have no idea. Uh, it's uh, really very tragic when 
you know this exercise when you listen to what people say at the focus groups where you sit behind the glass and they don't see you keep talking uh, between each other and discussing ideas and I mean there you go full vicious circle like you ask people what is better government ownership or private ownership and they say of course government should control everything because we don't we don't trust these capitalists <laughs> but is the government an effective owner no of course not bureaucrats should not control anything right so and there it goes back again and again right uh, so um, uh, we t- we see this as an opportunity to educate people with our ideas and explain what we have to offer Like, for instance, our idea of competitive markets and competition versus monopolism is taken very good because the word monopoly itself has a very, very negative uh, attitude and people understand what it means. And uh, Every month they have to pay more for basic services because of monopolism. And if you go to... Uh, provincial cities, what you see is like a shiny new building of a branch of Gazprom, a shiny new building of a new branch of a pension fund, a shiny new building of Russian railways, and then basically you step in all this surrounded by luxury cars of their employees. You step three meters away and everything is pretty much broken as it was uh, 30, 40 years ago. People know, people understand this reality and uh, uh, Putin's economy is a narrow opportunity for just a handful of uh, people in the system and uh, their cronies and uh, the poverty for everybody else. Uh, that's, that's the essence of the Putin system. People don't like it. So the ideas of demonopolization and increasing, mobilizing additional resources and increasing productivity and effectiveness and uh, 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 removing barriers for smaller and medium businesses through demonopolization of the economy, people like that. The fact that uh, we want to take away government spending from bureaucracy, from Siloviki, uh, and uh, from these uh, unnecessary, ineffective economic projects, uh, and spend more on human development, on healthcare and education, people like that idea. That we want to see more dividends at the market level from Gazprom and Rosneft and spend it on the pension system. They like that idea. So the, the matter is that we don't have enough economic discussion in our media. goes back to the issues of uh, media freedom. But we're trying to break through. And Alexei Navalny was pretty successful in building his own media empire through social networks. That has a really great audience. Uh, it's still not enough to change things nationwide, but uh, we're going to keep expanding it. Well, talking about, you know, quote unquote, average uh, Russian citizens, um, there's been a lot of discussions about the the new generation, right? You can define that in any way you want. uh, But uh, right before the elections, there are a few articles, one very good article in The Economist called The Poutines. I don't know if you saw that, but there's a lot of interviews uh, with young people, teenagers mostly, uh, who, you know, come from very different backgrounds. Some have the means to travel to Europe. Some come from villages. Others, you know, are in universities and have a tech background. And they, for different kind of very contradictory reasons, all supported Putin. Yet at the same time, we have this very different image of people of that same age group, the sort of teenagers, uh, coming out in the streets and protesting against corruption, against uh, the Kremlin, against the only leader that they've ever known, basically. Um, so what is your sense where this you know, very, very young generation, so you could say, you call the Putin generation because Putin is the only leader I've ever known. You know, what's your sense of, you know, 
how would you define their attitudes, their their views of the world? Uh, that's a very interesting question because you're right, the problem exists. And for uh, many years, uh, the younger generation, basically late teenagers and people in the early 20s, were uh, officially considered, and the polling also reflected that, they were the most loyal group in the society. So the, the, the conformist uh, group, uh, you Conformist say. group because uh, they had a healthy 50-plus percent who said that they approved the direction of the country, approved Putin and so on, and then it declined. Uh, uh, elderly group was less uh, approving. My generation, like 35 to, to 55, uh, basically was the most negative. The pensioner is also negative, but a bit less. So th- there, was, there was the same problem about which uh, Mikhail Khodorkovsky complained to Putin in 2003 during their infamous meeting in Kremlin, which eventually sparked uh, the Yukos case and uh, Khodorkovsky's arrest, he said, look, what you're doing is you're encouraging uh, the youth uh, not to get engaged in entrepreneurship, uh, but uh, majority of uh, young people want to work in Gazprom or in a big state structure taking bribes. That's That's the dream of... Uh, Putin's uh, youth and and as a matter of fact that has a lot of truth to it Uh, there are two things about it first uh, youth is very polarized uh, for for this generation I'm talking about yes you have probably more than 50% who are loyal but you have about a third who, who is very angry and who is very much against so I would say among the youth the polarization is the strongest and second, uh, there are these generational waves. You don't stop at 20. Uh, we see many people who are younger right now who have a totally different attitude. And they are a large part of the uh, Alexei Navalny opposition movement that emerged over the course of the last year or so. Uh, we talk to many of them, and the biggest problem is that they just see no opportunity for themselves. Uh, it reminds me of an old Soviet joke, you know, when... A father and the son are talking and father asks his son, uh, Sonny, who do you want to be when you grow up? And son says, I want to be a general. And father answers, well, uh, Sonny, there is a problem because the general has his own son, <laughs> which, which uh, um, uh, totally reflects the reality that we have today. The youth doesn't feel like it is in demand uh, because the resources are controlled by the few who already are relatives to some bureaucrats or their cronies, and and, and they have uh, basically no opportunity for themselves to make a better living, better future, and so on. So it goes in waves. You know, it reminds me of my experience of 1980s because we had elderly, the Brezhnev generation, which have chosen to adopt and to try to benefit somehow from this inadequate system. Now, our generation in the 80s was much angrier and uh, was totally against uh, the Soviet system and wanted to change that. I see the same thing happening, and I see people who were, like in their early 20s a few years ago, basically being loyal, but those who are a bit younger, they have a totally different attitude. So uh, this this generational wave uh, actually means a lot, and... uh, you should not talk about all Russian youth as one. Uh, there are these uh, differences in terms of age and in terms of uh, attitude to what's happening. That's really interesting. Thank you for breaking that out so clearly. Um, you know, you're in Washington, D.C., as I learned for the first time in three years. So what's your purpose for coming here? Well, I, come, I first came here more than 20 years ago when I was an official, and uh, I know a lot of people here for many years, and I love America, and I used to consider America a leader of the free world, which I consider myself part of, 
despite the fact that I live in a dictatorship and I want to communicate with people from the free world and I often visit Europe uh, and, and uh many other democratic countries. I have a lot of contacts here. I used to be, by the way, I used to be a co-chair of intergovernmental working group on energy dialogue with the Bush administration uh, back in 2002. Mm, interesting. So I have, I have a lot of ties here. And I just look, uh, uh, I'm concerned that uh, uh, I see many people here who just don't go beyond the headlines in analyzing what's going on with Russia. I think that might contribute ultimately to wrong decisions, uh, like uh, giving up on Russia, writing it off, uh, saying that Putin will be forever, Russians love him, and it doesn't make sense to pay attention. Don't write us off. Russia will be back eventually, and uh, I'm here to deliver this message and actually tell some fresh truth from what happens on the ground and beyond the headlines. Well, that encapsulates the purpose of this special series on Russia podcast that we're doing in Lawfare, uh, trying to look beyond so the politics of uh, whether it be the, the Mueller investigation that's ongoing today, of collusion with the Russian government, obstruction of justice by the Trump campaign at the time. And we're trying to get beyond that to give you know our listeners and our audience a better sense of what Russia really is and what it isn't. Um, so... Thank you for joining us today. It was a great pleasure. Thanks for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to Vladimir for joining me on the podcast and giving us a crash course on the Russian economy. If you haven't yet, tell your friends about the podcast on social media and give us a rating and review wherever you found us. As always, our music is performed by Sofia Yan. I'm Alina Polyakova. Thanks for listening. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.